You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to those who are watching on live stream, wherever you are. Welcome to this event entitled Lebanon at the Crossroads, the Middle East Realignment and Crises. I'm Michael Yaffe. I'm the Vice President of the Middle East North Africa Center here at USIP. And for those of you who have been to USIP before, welcome back. And for those of you who are new to USIP, let me just give you a very brief word about USIP. We are an institution that that was established in 1984 by an act of Congress, and we are dedicated to the idea that uh, peace is practical and possible. And our work and our mission on research in the field is devoted to the idea of how do we prevent, how do we mitigate, and how do we resolve violent conflict. Today's event complements an ongoing exhibition here at USIP entitled Imagine Reflections of Peace. The exhibition is just outside our hall here, and we welcome everyone to, uh, to attend it, those of you who are here in person, to go look at it. And for those of you who are online to make reservations to come see it, the event is uh, carrying on from now until August 1st. In this event, we look at various places where there has been conflict, and it reflects what has happened in those conflicts over the last 30 to 40 years. And one of the areas that is of focus is Lebanon. This, this today's session actually complements the, the exhibition itself. It complements it under the theme imperfect peace. That since 1989, Lebanon has been struggling with its peace agreement and struggling with a series of crises. It has implications not just within Lebanon, but throughout the region. So today, we have an opportunity to reflect on what has happened in Lebanon and what is the future of Lebanon. To lead us in this discussion, we are very fortunate to have Ambassador Yusuf um, Hisham, who is um, a senior fellow here at the Institute. Ambassador Hisham has been with, uh, has served in a number of key positions, very senior positions in the government of Egypt, in the Organization of Islamic States, and within the Arab League. So I couldn't think of a better person to help moderate the discussion and to introduce our distinguished panelists. So, Ambassador. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, Welcome, everybody. And in going with the times, this is a hybrid event. So we welcome those who are here in person, and we welcome those who are joining us online. As Mike said, this is an important event in relation to the situation in Lebanon. And we have uh, three speakers. Uh, who will be joining us uh, this morning. Uh, And I'm not surprised that there are a large number of people who are joining us uh, both here and online. Uh, The three speakers are uh, Paul Salem. And Paul Salem is the president of the Middle East Institute. Uh, He has been working for decades on issues pertaining to conflict uh, in the region, political change, transitions, and more. Uh, Even more importantly, he is also a musician and the composer of Arabic Brazilian jazz. Uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure to see you, Paul. And uh, I have Thank to say, you, also, I also have to say that uh, the Middle East Institute has a working group that is focused on Lebanon, the situation in Lebanon, and developments pertaining to the situation in Lebanon. Next, we have Ambassador David Chinker, who is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute. Uh, He served as an assistant secretary of state for the Near East Affairs, uh, focusing on issues pertaining to the region, starting from Morocco to Iran and more. He administered a budget of over $7 billion, uh, so so he had a lot on his plate. And since then, he has been focusing on the Middle East, also in the context of his role in uh, the Middle East, uh, the Washington Institute. Finally, last and not least... Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to see you. Uh, Finally, last and not least, we have uh, Mona Yaqobian, a senior advisor at USIP. Uh, She has been focusing for decades on Syria, Iraq, and Lebanon, 
three countries that have been in turmoil for a number of decades now. And uh, she served as the executive director of the congressionally appointed uh, Syria study group only recently and worked on violent extremism, fragility, and resilience. Uh, before that, she was deputy assistant administrator in the Middle East Bureau at USAID. Of course, this is a very abbreviated introduction, and you can find the, the details of all the bios in their respective uh, institutions. Uh, and their publications and what they have contributed can fill a medium-sized library, uh, whether it's books, articles, and otherwise. Um, as, as Mike said, the Institute has been following the situation in Lebanon for years, and it has been going from, unfortunately, from bad to worse. A recent World Bank report indicated that the severe economic and financial crisis in Lebanon is likely to rank as one of the worst, the worst that the world has seen in over 150 years. So this is the extent of the severity of the situation. Uh, Lebanon remains the country that hosts the largest number of refugees compared to the size of its population in the world, with an, with an estimated 1.5 million Syrian refugees living in dire conditions, and also a number of a large number of Palestinian refugees who have been there for several decades. Uh, more recently, it has suffered from a huge, devastating explosion in the port of Beirut, and it saw the economic situation go from bad to worse. The lira dropped by 90%. It has shortages in electricity, in uh, gasoline, and in many other basic needs. And it was part of the second wave of uh, revolutions and uprisings in the regions. And elections were held only recently uh, against all odds. So we will discuss all these issues with our three panelists. Uh, the elections brought some modest developments that we will be discussing, uh, with 13 reform-minded candidates willing, which is rather unusual in the situation in Lebanon for those who follow Lebanon closely. And more recently, there were also tensions with Israel regarding maritime borders and exploration of gas in the, in the Mediterranean. We will be focusing on three themes, main themes, uh, the current situation in Lebanon, regional developments affecting the situation in Lebanon, and finally, uh, what should the U.S. policy be uh, in light of these developments in Lebanon? Let me start by by Paul and ask him about the situation regarding uh, the elections and how these elections would affect the future of Lebanon, because there are different views. There are those who believe that this is a step in the right direction that can lead to further positive developments, and there, there are those who feel that uh, the, the establishment in Lebanon and the difficulties associated with the political situation in Lebanon will make it more difficult for, for things to improve. So we'll start by you, Paul, and then, and then move with the same question to David and Mona. Paul, you have the floor. Thank you, Ambassador Hisham. It's a pleasure to be in this panel with USIP, with my good friends Mona and David, and greetings to those at USIP and following online. Uh, yeah, you described the situation uh, rather well. People are familiar with the uh, disastrous situation at the social and economic level. Uh, you mentioned the collapse of the Lebanese pound. Poverty rates uh, are up around 80 percent from a country which used to be a middle-income country. Uh, so those uh, socioeconomic conditions are very dire. Uh, the elections, indeed, as you mentioned, were held. Uh, one would have to say that uh, they were somewhat positive in bringing limited change to the parliament. Uh, but it's also the case that uh, that will not directly uh, change uh, the sort of status quo in Lebanon in terms of the uh, challenges ahead uh, for governance and the things that need to be done. Uh, in particular, after these parliamentary elections, there is a need 
to form a government as efficiently as possible. That is not going to be easy. No coalition or group has a solid majority uh, in parliament. It's easy, it's hard in normal times uh, to select the prime minister and for that prime minister to try to put together a government. It's probably gonna be even more challenging now, uh, but at a time when Lebanon desperately needs an effective government to implement the needed reforms, to sign, uh, uh, the necessary deal with the IMF and to begin to uh, turn the economic situation around. I'm rather pessimistic uh, that that will happen, particularly that the term of the president, uh, President Aoun, ends uh, this October, ends in the end of October, uh, and then there will be a, a, a challenge uh, to elect a new president. Uh, again, I, I find it very difficult to imagine that there will be agreement on uh, selecting, electing a president by parliament in October. And I fear that there will be a long period, maybe many months long, could be a year or more in which a president is not agreed upon. So I fear that there's going to be continued drift in terms of capacity to govern, capacity to implement reforms that would uh, begin a socioeconomic recovery. Hence, in the absence of such decisions, I fear a continued deterioration further deterioration of the monetary, economic, uh, and social situation, which has you know, rendered life in Lebanon for many, many people uh, very, uh, very desperate. It is important to note there are some you know, small positive uh, potentials, uh, and I'm sure David can talk much more about that, but there is some movement on the maritime talks uh, with Israel. Uh, there is some hope that a U.S. brokered deal to bring Egyptian gas and Jordanian electricity to Lebanon in a couple of months, two or three months, might improve the electricity situation. There have been and there has been a staff agreement with the IMF uh, and continued talks. So, uh, uh, you know, there are pathways, but I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic that we'll be able to uh, turn anything around dramatically. And we, I'll close by saying hanging over all of this is geopolitical issues like U.S.-Iranian relations, how will that impact Hezbollah, uh, you know, its policies in Lebanon and Hezbollah-Israeli dynamics are also, there are some linkages uh, with other issues, but I'm sure we'll get to that later. Thank you, Ambassador Hishan. Thank you, Paul. We'll get to that in the next question, absolutely. Let me go to David. Uh, David, uh, Paul is rather pessimistic and he feels that the situation will deteriorate further. Do you, do you, do you agree with that or do you think that there is still some hope? Well, uh, Ambassador, it's uh, good to be with you. It's good to be on the panel with Paul and Ramona. Um, and uh, although I don't say it very often, I, I, I agree with Paul. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, I think, uh, but no, I think he, he, his assessment is correct, which is that uh, although the, the parliamentary elections, I think, um, were indicative of an expression of, uh, of popular discontent um, uh, that are, it was measurable, um, but um, the institutional um, barriers to significant change because of the, the different array in, in parliament um, still exist. Um, and so I'm not particularly uh, optimistic about the prospects for, for broad change um, that, that is going to be dictated by, by this new, new parliament. Um, we still have uh, the same, the very same speaker of parliament um, who has certain uh, alliances and interests. Um, I, I think that even with um, these new candidates, that there, um, there's a broad range of opinion, uh, even as you can uh, characterize them as a reform-oriented, perhaps. Um, they're uh, not necessarily unified on, on a bunch of, of other issues. Um, and so um, Hezbollah still exists, and um, Hezbollah, along with uh, its allies in the, in the country, are, are not particularly um, known for their orientation and support for reform. Um, uh, these are groups, people that profit off the uh, corruption, um, uh, do not want to see uh, they move toward uh, transparency um, and something that, uh, so I'm not, I'm not really um, optimistic. Um, I also think that when you have such a, uh, a difficult 
um, economic, political situation, man-made, of course, um, uh, by love these political elites, <clears throat> that um, oftentimes this drives people toward more sectarianism. Um, you look back to your sect for uh, protection, um, and uh, and so this, in a way, even as there was an, an expression of uh, discontent um, with uh, with traditional political elites in Lebanon, uh, there there may be a um, uh, the, the grabbing onto or uh, holding onto the, these traditional elites because of the the deterioration. Um, uh, finally. Um, maritime um, gas electricity um, as Paul said uh, there may be some movement uh, uh, even on this regard um, I, I think we're a little premature perhaps there will be a, a gas deal um, uh, or and or electric um, there's some issues with Congress also some some issues um, in Lebanon that are preventing that from happening um, but the maritime I think is still far from probably far from, from done. And even if it does get done, um, this is not a country necessarily um, that will embrace the idea of a transparent sovereign wealth fund. Um, and so it may not be, uh, be everything that's cracked up to be for the people, for benefiting the people of Lebanon. So I'll end up on there. Thank you, David. Mona, now, now two, <laughs> two rather pessimistic uh, views of the development. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to inject a note of hope okay. and optimism. I, I feel compelled to do it. First, thank you, Hisham, and it's great to be with Paul and David, even virtually. Um, thank you both for joining. So, yes, I think Lebanon is in an incredibly fraught moment, and I think I have to, I feel compelled to add, in addition to all the statistics, um, Lebanon is also going to be very adversely impacted by the Ukraine conflict and the, the global food crisis. There are about three quarters of Lebanese families who cannot afford to put food on the table, um, which is pretty astounding when one considers that this was really a solidly middle-income country. And now we've seen the Lebanese middle class essentially vanish before our eyes, which is is pretty extraordinary when you think about it. Um, in addition, I think I would I, I fully concur with both Paul and David's analyses. I mean, I think unfortunately there is a good chance we are headed into a period of gridlock and stalemate, with a divided parliament, with um, you know incredible difficulties ahead in terms of cabinet formation, the election of a president. But this is something Lebanon simply cannot afford. This level of inaction, unfortunately, uh, only leads to further deterioration in living standards. And I do think bottom-up social explosion in that scenario needs to be considered as people become increasingly desperate, as living conditions continue to deteriorate. Okay, so where's the hope? Um, the hope is, I think we have to pause for a moment and just acknowledge a few things. One, that the election took place at all. Uh, yes, it was fraught with the typical vote buying and um, you know corrupt practices, unfortunately, that mar Lebanese elections. But it took place without violence. It took place with a participation rate that largely matched the previous election, which was before all kinds of horrible things befell Lebanon. Um, but most importantly, I think we should focus for a second on these 13 MPs who comprise now 10% of the parliament. And while it is important to note that there is actually no parliamentary majority, which by the way is a plus, let's not forget Hezbollah held the parliamentary majority before. Um, and so that does potentially bode ill for moving legislation forward. I think those 13 MPs deserve um, more kind of thought and attention as to what they can do. Um, can they be a force, can, number one, can they unify? Can they form their own kind of coalescing block? Big question. Uh, unfortunately, the opposition movement in Lebanon has been marred by uh, political and personal differences. But this is an important moment. And they all share uh, I think a strong uh, perspective on the need for reform. So that's the first question. The second question, 
can this block then become a leverage point within the parliament for um, uh, elements legislation that the parliament can pass that will help to put Lebanon even gradually on a step, on a path toward reform? Can they pass a budget? Can they pass long-standing uh, legislative issues that are necessarily part of an IMF uh, 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 rescue package? So things like um, amending the banking secrecy laws, uh, establishing uh, uh, capital controls. Let me be clear. These are very difficult issues. But at least you have people who were elected with that uh, kind of sentiment behind them, that the country is in dire need of reform. And lastly, I think it's important, we've all talked about Lebanon's system. We talked about the fact that this is a, an entrenched, corrupt patronage system. It is a relic of, um, of the Ta'if Accords and the ways, the sort of unfinished vision of peace in Lebanon. But the election of these 13 MPs, in my view anyway, is a very important, small, but important, gradual first step toward, ideally, uh, more peaceful political change and reform in Lebanon. Thank you for ejecting. If, I may, if I may add, uh, Ambassador Hisham, uh, if I may, I'd like to add uh, to Mona's uh, not so much optimism and pessimism. It's, you know, what are the good elements and, and what are the obviously worrisome elements? I, I do want to double down on the social political change that has been happening in Lebanon since 2019. Uh, the uprising of 2019 and then the blast and the continuing uh, activity, mobilization uh, that we've seen in Lebanon uh, at an intensity and an activity that I don't think Lebanon has seen since maybe the 1950s or 1960s. Yes, this movement has been plagued by division. Uh, it could have done much better. But as Muna said, uh, it had a real presence. It now has a real presence in the country as well as in the parliament. Uh, getting, you know, going almost from zero to 10% is no joke. I look at this uh, in the medium term, uh, that this proves that there is something uh, sort of socio-political that is changing in Lebanon. Uh, the traditional leaders and parties that dominated the post-war landscape uh, are not gaining ground, they're losing ground. And there is definitely throughout the country, from north to south, from east to west, an appetite for change. Uh, the challenge ahead is that not only that these 13 deputies, as Muna said, they can play a, a possibly an important role in a hung parliament. Uh, they might uh, be determined majorities here and there, so their work in the parliament will be very important, and they need to be helped and supported to play a positive role within parliament. But the results of these elections have given new hope to, uh, to civil society groups, a population which, even on the eve of elections, uh, had almost given up hope and did not expect any positive results. Uh, and I think uh, gives new momentum to continued organization after the elections. The next immediate challenge is the local elections, which are supposed to be held in the spring of 2023. Those are uh, very, very important elections for over uh, 10,000 municipal seats. Uh, and that, uh, if, uh, again, the civil society groups throughout the country organize, uh, they could secure thousands uh, or tens of thousands of seats. And that would, that would be very important for the next parliamentary election. So I'm hoping that Lebanon is in a period of, uh, of political transformation that I don't, I don't think will at all be total. But I think it might, uh, uh, in a positive scenario, end up becoming 25, 30 percent or something around that in the electorate. Uh, and that could be really significant. But in the short term, you know, in the next few months, uh, we are in very dire straits. We need an executive branch that makes these decisions. And that's where where I think our problem is. It's sort of like, you know, somebody living on the 10th floor of an apartment uh, is pushed out of his apartment window and is crashing down, uh, you know, towards the towards the ground. And somebody says, you know, situation doesn't look too good for you in the short term. But in the long term, you're going to have new furniture and, you know, the apartment's going to look great. So. There's a lot of focus on the uh, on the short-term crisis that's in front of us. Thank you. Well, uh, I would add, if I if I can, Ambassador, there's 
there's a, an incredible amount of bad things that can happen before we get uh, a president um, and administration in this country. Um, we have a caretaker government. The deterioration is severe. Um, more and more people are leaving the country um, and may not be coming back. Um, there are changes that are underway and, and trends in the country uh, that are going to be you know, hard to, to reverse. Um, so while, while I do think uh, this is an important signal what happened in the parliament, and I hope, Paul, that you are right, that, um, that this is a harbinger of you know, future parliamentary elections and a trend and they can get up to 30%. We have to remember, there's not a, a single Shiite who got elected that wasn't Hezbollah or Amal. Um, you know, there is a, a large block there that is going nowhere. Um, and uh, the, the, that Hezbollah still has its allies. And uh, there is an effective veto of who will be the president of the administration of this country. And that's not going to change uh, any time in the near future. Two, just two very, very quick points. Um, one, just to respond to David. I mean, I think he's absolutely right. Uh, Hezbollah and Amal held all their seats. But there were some notable losses by others in Hezbollah uh, strongholds, both in the south and the Bekaa. That's notable. I think that's really important. And the second point, which I neglected to say, is the other, the other reason I think this is notable is that we saw street movements translate uh, their uh, activism into uh, political assets in parliament. And that's not something we've seen much of in the Arab world. I think it's notable. One of the key real takeaways from the so-called Arab Spring was the inability of uh, uh, Arabs demanding change to translate street protests and demonstrations into viable uh, political action with real resonance. Um, and, and we've seen that in Lebanon, and I think it's notable. Thank you. Um, well, the three of you mentioned regional aspects in different ways in your first uh, interventions. Uh, let me go again to go somewhat deeper on, on regional issues and how regional issues will affect developments in Lebanon. Whether it's, uh, uh, we can reach an, a nuclear deal between the United States and Iran, the situation in Syria, um, the issue of the maritime borders, how this will impact uh, the situation in Lebanon. Uh, Mona also mentioned the situation in Ukraine and how this is affecting developments in Lebanon, particularly in as far as food security is concerned. So I hope somewhat briefly this time to address how the regional implications would affect the situation in Lebanon. And then we will go to aspects pertaining to U.S. policy because I want to take questions from those who are participating both here and virtually. So let's start this time with Mona and then go to David and then Paul. So I'm going to I'm going to defer to David on the maritime negotiations because he's far more steeped and will have a much more cogent analysis than I will. Um, but I think for me the issues around uh, the, the regional aspects again are two competing dynamics. One of de-escalation in the region, and we've seen that as with this perceived U.S. withdrawal and efforts um, by. Uh, the Iranians and the Saudis, or the Saudis and the Iranians, to de-escalate tensions. We've seen moves, of course, toward normalization with Israel. We've seen moves toward normalization with the Assad regime. Um, uh, so there is that trend, and I think Lebanon, in the, in the sense of there being more quiet, has benefited from it. However, um, equally, and maybe perhaps more concerning, at least from my perspective, is this trend toward escalation, an unintended escalation. And I think it ties directly to um, faltering JCPOA uh, negotiations. I also think there's an interesting uh, development to watch in Syria, which is uh, as the Russians pivot their attention and their strategic bandwidth more toward Ukraine, we are seeing that the stalemate that has pertained in Syria may be uh, upset, that we, may, we might begin to see more instability in Syria, which could have implications for Lebanon and the region. And in particular, what, what concerns me is um, the ways in which Iranian elements on the ground are seeking to take advantage of Russia's repositioning, uh, moving the, perhaps closer to the Israeli border, 
um, and the ways in which Israel is signaling its deep uh, discontent with Iran. And we've seen uh, this very bold assassination of an IRGC colonel in Tehran. We saw, just a matter of a few days ago, the Damascus airport shut down, <laughs> like disabled entirely, um, which is actually, if you just take a step back and think about it, astounding. Um, I worry, and, and the Russians sort of seeming to step back or perhaps, I, I, I'm not, to me it's not clear what the Russian role is, although I will say we are also seeing increased Russian-Israeli tensions, um, and that's also being played out in Syria. Um, all of which is to say, I think there are these two competing dynamics, and my own feeling is that we are entering perhaps a very worrisome period in the region that could be marked by uh, miscalculation, unintended escalation, uh, with perhaps negative ramifications, most likely in Syria and Iraq, which interestingly enough is where those tensions are being played out far more than in Lebanon, but potentially Lebanon as well. Thank you, Mona. David? Thanks, Ambassador. Um, well, uh, we'll see where the JCPA goes. I, I think you have a, Iran doing things throughout the region, um, but uh, you also have, unexpectedly perhaps, uh, Iran encouraging the Houthis to maintain the ceasefire. Now, perhaps that will be over in a short period of time, but it's a remarkable development. How this plays out in Lebanon, I, I don't know um, what Iran is going to do or encourage Hezbollah to do, but I know independently of what um, what Iran is doing, you're seeing dramatically increased tensions along the border. You're seeing more Hezbollah weapons along the border. You're seeing uh, the Precision Guided Munitions Program moving along apace. You're seeing um, new Green Without Borders positions very close to the borders. You're seeing UNIFIL being beaten up on a weekly basis by pro-Hezbollah or Hezbollah um, operatives in South Lebanon. Um, um, decreased Israeli overflights of Lebanon. And uh, con that's a counterindication, actually. It means that it's increasingly dangerous to fly over Lebanon and uh, makes a war almost more likely. Um, so um, I'm concerned about this, but I don't know if that's necessarily because of a, a regional development or what happens with the, with the JCPOA. Um, uh, along these lines, though, if we're talking regional, um, I was in Saudi a short while back. Um, I don't think the Saudis have a great deal of interest in, in really playing in Lebanon again. Um, uh, so the, uh, that uh, some people think that's a good thing. Some people think it's a bad thing. I, I think it just reflects um, Saudi frustration with, uh, with, Lebanon, with Lebanon, uh, and the trajectory there. Um, as for maritime, um, the latest deal that may be on the table, this Kana for Karish, um, a, a Lebanese oil field for exchange for the provision of, of an oil field to, to Israel. And then the, the line 23, uh, I think this is a creative solution. Um, uh, and yet one that may not be acceptable to, to all parties. Um, uh, I, I think uh, the, the Lebanese came in, actually, interestingly enough, um, the, the leading supporters of the maximalist line, uh, the 29 line in Lebanon, happened to be uh, seemingly the, the 15 or 13 new independent reform-minded politicians in parliament. Uh, it's an interesting development. But um, it, uh, it may be that um, this negotiating tactic of going for a maximalist line and then falling back to the 23 line, like I said, isn't going to be acceptable for, uh, for the Israelis necessarily. Um, so I would expect in any event uh, that uh, the extraction and development of this resource, it will take, what, seven years to get a single molecule of gas out of the ground and for Lebanon to get any real impact. But um, you know, as far as the tensions, we're seeing this play out with Hezbollah, who, which in, in my view doesn't really want to solve any of the outstanding issues um, between Israel and Lebanon, lest it undermine the raison d'etre and uh, encourage more people to talk about why Hezbollah doesn't need its weapons. Thank you very much, David. Paul? Yeah, 
I mean, let me start by saying, when you look at the regional situation in Lebanon, the first thing to say is that the presence of Hezbollah like it is today is a fundamental, uh, uh, you know, a violation of uh, Lebanese sovereignty or the capacity uh, of a Lebanese state to even exist. Uh, Hezbollah has its own army, its own foreign policy, its own intelligence networks, own financing, uh, own defense and attack policy. Uh, the presence of Hezbollah makes it almost impossible for the Lebanese state to control all of its borders or its ports or its airports. Uh, and the fact that a, a regional country, Iran, continues to support this policy and expect Lebanon or other countries in the region to, you know, to normalize in that way uh, is, uh, you know, from a Lebanese perspective, is, 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 is very difficult. Uh, uh, having said that, I mean, that simply explains that Lebanon's main dysfunction is going to continue. There is no scenario in the foreseeable future where Hezbollah will integrate into the Lebanese state or become part of the Lebanese Republic. I can see no scenario where that happens. So the basic dysfunction is going to continue. Maybe a little bit of change here, a little bit of change there, a new president maybe at some point, some changes in parliament. So that is very, very unfortunate until something major uh, happens to change that. Now, within that dynamic, uh, you know, we, we uh, the outcome of the uh, U.S., uh, you know, the JCPOA could be relevant. Uh, uh, you know, even from Rob Malley's latest testimony, you know, it's not clear that there actually is going to be such a thing. But let me just throw out there, you know, two scenarios. That if uh, if there is a, a return to the JCPOA and the U.S. and Iran manage to eke out a deal of some kind, it is possible that uh, diplomacy, some level of maybe backdoor diplomacy, uh, you know, that involves U.S., Iran, Gulf countries, France, and so on, could uh, uh, nudge Lebanese diplomacy or Lebanese politics along and enable the election of a president, empower a government, and sort of nudge the country forwards in terms of reform. I, that has happened before in recent Lebanese history, where regional diplomatic sort of breakthroughs enable a, a small Lebanese breakthrough. So there could be a positive scenario there, even though if you had a JCPOA, it means Hezbollah would have more money, uh, not less. But uh, even with less money, they don't seem to have become any any weaker. So uh, maybe that's not a big variable. The other scenario is if really the deal completely falls through. There is no such a pathway, uh, in which case uh, we will see, you know, more worries about escalation, about tension, and probably more obstructionism in Lebanon, more and hence, we might enter a longer period, one or two years without a president, without a government, a darker scenario. So I think there's relevance there. On the Syrian side, it is noteworthy that while there was some talk in recent months that, you know, Syria is coming back, some countries are normalizing with it and so on, that Syria's allies in the Lebanese elections almost to a candidate lost. Uh, and that's that is an interesting, uh, uh, you know, signal. It uh, doesn't seem that, that Syrian political influence is returning to Lebanon, while Iranian influence remains very, very high. Uh, it is also worrisome to me that Syria has turned increasingly into a narco state with billions of dollars of uh, production and smuggling. That can only have sort of negative and dangerous impacts uh, on Lebanon and networks in Lebanon and airports and ports and mafia things. Uh, uh, so I'm worried about that as well. And any escalation between Israel and Iran or Israel and Hezbollah uh, would certainly take Lebanon another 30, 40 years backwards. We hope that does not happen. Thank you, Paul. Let me, let me go to David, uh, to start with David this time because he has probably done this many times before. The elevator pitch, if you have the ears of the president or the secretary of state for one or two minutes to tell him what the U.S. policy should be in Lebanon in uh, the near term. So uh, let me go to you, David, first, and then go to Paul and then Mona once again. David. Well, um, thanks, Ambassador. Uh, listen, I, I think uh, the ability to impact the trajectory uh, on the ground in Lebanon is somewhat limited. We have uh, diplomatic, um, financial tools, et cetera, uh, disincentives. 
Um, I would tell the president first, uh, continue the humanitarian aid. Um, we didn't cause this, finan this financial collapse, this Ponzi scheme. Uh, this was, you know, made uh, by uh, Lebanon, uh, but um, we as the United States should um, help feed the Lebanese people. And I think we are the most uh, generous international uh, donor to Lebanon. We should make, make sure the Lebanese know that we are doing this. Um, second, um, the, the pillar of um, U.S. sort of policy in Lebanon has been um, for some time now the, uh, the supports of the LAF. Um, uh, this is a controversial, increasingly controversial topic in Washington. Um, I, I don't think that's going to, to change. Um, and I, I do see some continued utility um, in, uh, in helping uh, stabilize, provide support to uh, this institution. Um, it's no panacea. It's problematic. It collaborates with Hezbollah, deconflicts with Hezbollah. Um, that is a problem. And um, perhaps most egregiously, um, it um, is not fulfilling its duty vis-a-vis -vis UNIFIL. Um, so, um, and the government of Lebanon, neither is the government of Lebanon. So I'd say that while we support Lebanon, we have to hold the LAF um, and the government of Lebanon to a higher standard. Um, we should be calling them out, um, the government of Lebanon, like UNIFIL has started to do, for not meeting their obligations, not prosecuting uh, people who attack Univille convoys, for not investigating. Um, they're, they're not solving these crimes. Um, and the LAF uh, cannot any longer obstruct Unifil. Um, in fact, um, this is something that they have been doing. They can read about it in all the reports. Um, I, I think that um, that this money should be, uh, in part, conditional on how the how the LAF behaves. Um, and finally, um, uh, I think that uh, the idea about the, the policy we put in place when I was in government, which is no more bailouts for Lebanon um, without implementation of reforms. I, I think that's the right policy. Um, it's increasingly hard to do. I think uh, the French and others are uh, want to do more for Lebanon. And um, uh, I think the principle of that the United States um, cannot help Lebanon unless uh, Lebanon helps itself, I think, still stands at the government, uh, at the government level. Um, people have to make difficult choices there. Uh, and that includes reform. And to incentivize that, of course, I think we should be uh, implementing global Magnitsky sanctions for um, the most corrupt uh, in Lebanon continue with that practice. So I'd leave it there. Thank you, David. Paul? Yeah, I would say, I mean, the U.S. policy towards Lebanon has been quite forward-leaning in the amount of support it's provided to the Lebanese army. The army is not perfect. That's a big institution in a small country that some things they're able to do, others they're not. But I would say, on balance, they've played a tremendous role in maintaining stability, preventing a real full state collapse and complete disorder. Uh, they remain a backbone of what, what, you know, what exists of Lebanon, Lebanese stability and Lebanese uh, legitimacy. And that a lot of that uh, is due to strong and continued uh, U.S. support. And that's extremely valuable. The U.S. has also been very forward-leaning on uh, humanitarian support, as David indicated, with the, with the most generous presence uh, that definitely needs to uh, continue for the sake of the Lebanese people. And if you want to be less sort of altruistic, uh, to prevent mass uh, refugee exodus to, to countries west and so on. And so I would say U.S. policy generally is in the right direction. I would emphasize that the remaining half of this year is going to be politically intensive and requires intensive diplomacy. So the basic policies in place, I think, are good. I'm heartened that certainly U.S. diplomacy is very active. We have a very active and excellent ambassador in the country. Amos Hochstein has been giving a lot of his time uh, on the energy uh, side of things. Uh, you know, Secretary Blinken has been uh, in the region, and President Biden is going to the region. Lebanon, the next six months, I think, needs intensive diplomacy with heavy U.S. engagement or leadership to make sure we reach the end of the year with an effective president, with an effective prime minister, with an effective government, so that uh, by early 2023, the country uh, can respond to the needs of its people and really begin, uh, uh, you know, making, uh, making the decisions, passing the laws, 
that uh, need to happen. And I think there is no substitute for U.S. diplomacy. Uh, it's done it in the past. Uh, we have a lot of friends in Europe, a lot of friends in the region. We do need the Gulf countries to re-engage. Uh, both the Gulf countries and the U.S. and Europe uh, are in the right place by saying to the Lebanese government that you have to do your homework first, no more bailouts, uh, 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 but bringing the Gulfies back in in a proactive way would have a very positive effect as well. So I would urge intense diplomacy over the next few months. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. There is, there is a general trend uh, in the same direction. Yeah, Morning. I will continue it. So okay. basically, I mean, I, I would I agree largely with these, with the, the recommendations of the U.S. really essentially needing to stay engaged. The humanitarian crisis uh, cannot be over-exaggerated. I think the need to, particularly because of the Ukraine conflict impact now on food security in Lebanon, it will be essential that we increase our uh, food assistance to Lebanon. We should also think about expanding the amount of cash assistance to the most vulnerable Lebanese and Syrian refugees. And this is a cash assistance that goes directly to these vulnerable populations. It has nothing to do with the Lebanese government. I fully concur that um, no bailouts uh, for, the, for the Lebanese government. They must implement reform. It's egregious. It goes beyond, the egregious doesn't begin to describe their behavior and their unwillingness to address the issues that have plagued this country now for, for years. I would add, I think we need to up our game with respect to political assistance, democracy uh, promotion types of activities. We need to, in a smart way, uh, provide uh, parliamentary training, for example, to these new MPs. We need to think about assisting with political party formation, perhaps, um, uh, uh, coalition building. We now have people we can work with in the parliament, and I think it's really important to underscore that. Lastly, I think we need to really put a lot of pressure on the powers that be in Lebanon to form a technocratic government as soon as possible, because the, the magnitude and the severity of the challenge is so significant that we can't wait for the typical Lebanese horse trading and politics and political vacuums to play out. It Paul's you know, person falling out of the window may well be appropriate, and if we wait too long, there'll be nothing really to rescue. So I think it's incumbent on our government to pressure and demand that a technocratic government that can begin to actually do the hard work of putting, you know, implementing IMF reforms, very clear what needs to be done, that we, we, we prioritize that as a very urgent first step that needs to be taken in the wake of the parliamentary elections. Thank you, Mona. Now, now questions from both those who are participating in person and those online. Those online can go to the event page uh, on the USIP website and you can type your questions there. And those who are present here, I think we have a microphone at the end of the room that is ready for anyone who wants to ask a question. Any questions from those who are in the room? Sir Hank? Yeah, a microphone is coming. Well, uh, thank you. Thank and if you, you can say who the question is directed to, please. Yeah, uh, I'll actually probably direct it to all of them and whoever takes it. So, uh, first of all, thank you very much, Saran Hamasaid with USIP. Um, the 2003, as Iraq um, Saddam was removed from power, one Iraqi leader said, uh, "Iraq will be not be Lebanized." And at that time, I did not understand the depth of that term several years after, now I have seen that how actually the dynamics in Iraq and Syria, and Iraq, Iraq and Lebanon have, they're, they're repeating things that happens on each side. Uh, I want to go back to, uh, so recent elections, government formation stuck, and all of that. I want to go back to uh, something that uh, uh, Paul said, which is about transformation in Iraqi society, uh, which is a term that I view as well as he saw the term used transformation in the Lebanese society. And that was in 2019, in October, there were demonstrations in both sides. We understand that the international community to remain invested, there has to be something that you can work with. And that energy on both sides, I think, helps. But in Iraq, we are seeing that the limitations of that, we have seen the limitations of a larger number of parliamentarians there. So there is a hope and there is a limitation. But 
within the existing actors in Iraq, we see Muqtada Sadr trying to shape the politics in a certain way. We see uh, the, 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 uh, the, the Sunni leadership, the Kurdish leadership try to, to, to shape in a certain way. Is there an equivalent or similar dynamics on the Lebanese side where with, from the existing parties who are dominating that other avenues of change could be found? Thank you. Thank you, Sir Hank. Any additional questions from the, please. If you can state your name and affiliation. Thank you. Jean Abinadou, the American Task Force on Lebanon. Um, I'm interested in that when you looked at the region, we got Russia, Syria, the Gulf. Uh, there was no mention of Turkey. And yet one thing we've noticed that over the last three, four years is Turkey heightening its presence in Lebanon, particularly with the Sunni communities in the north and the south. Do you see Turkey's involvement in Lebanon as a positive or negative? Thank you very much. We also have a question coming online, and then I'll give the floor to the three speakers for their reactions on any questions that they would like to respond to. A question coming from Wolfgang Mülberger. Uh, and he's talking about the parliamentary elections and the number of opposition platforms that have been able to push candidates that are reform-minded. And he's asking what is the future role of these uh, opposition platforms. I think this was addressed in the statements uh, and interventions by the uh, speakers. But if they want to add any additional remarks in this regard, that would be uh, good. Uh, let me start by Mona, and then we'll go to Paul and then David. Okay, so very quickly, on, on I'll just say a word on the Lebanon-Iraq parallel, because I think, Sarhan, you framed it right. I think today the question more is, how does, how does Lebanon now avoid the Iraq scenario? I mean, Iraq is now entering a very, very dangerous mm. moment of tumult. Lebanon has been there before. The problem is Lebanon has not suffered the depth of humanitarian, social, and economic crisis that it's in. It simply cannot afford to go into a long uh, a political vacuum that, in the case of Iraq, could turn violent. Um, I think the answer here really is to look back and think about the cross-sectarian nature of political reform advocates in Lebanon. That's what was so remarkable about, about the 2019 protests, is that geographically it encompassed all of Lebanon. And it also kind of um, eschewed sectarian identity and took a cross-confessional approach uh, to the need for reform. That's why I'm saying we need to push, we, our government, needs to push for a technocratic government so that we avoid that kind of vacuum and we don't get into, I think David is absolutely right, as this goes longer, the, the Lebanese will fall back on their sectarian uh, identity and they will fall back into these ways. They already are in some uh, on some level because of the the depth of the humanitarian crisis and falling back on confessional uh, protectors, if you will, to provide things. So that, that's why I put that out there as an important first step. On the role of Turkey, um, Jean, you know, I haven't followed it very closely. We are seeing Turkey play a very menacing role or threatening in, in, in Syria with a further incursion, that, which is very concerning. My own view on Turkey is um, if its role is one to deepen sectarian identity and therefore sectarian divides, that is not helpful for Lebanon. Um, and I, and I, you know, I don't think that is the way forward. It's interesting to watch the Saudis in this regard, where uh, on the one hand, perhaps they are looking to you know, reprise in a very limited way uh, a role of supporting um, sectarian blocs that would be more akin to where they fall, as opposed to, the, of course, Hezbollah and Iran. Um, on the other hand, they're providing humanitarian assistance primarily to Tripoli, which is, of course, a, a, a Sunni-dominated city. But the question to my mind is, can we, can, if, if Turkey or Saudi or whomever are going to engage, Lebanon's problems are so significant, the U.S. certainly isn't going to be the one to, to, to provide all of the humanitarian assistance. It is essential that it, that engagement not come with a sectarian agenda. And so I worry a bit about the Turks in, in that regard. And then finally, on the future role of, the, of a reform platform, I mean, here my question is, how do we deepen the political skills of these reform-minded uh, 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 candidates, both in parliament and, of course, there were a slew of candidates who didn't win, 
but who retain that um, that energy and that desire and who are strong advocates for reform. So I think deepening uh, political training for these groups and then finally thinking about establishing. I did speak with uh, some re reform advocates, Lebanese reform advocates. One of the points that was made to me was the importance of political party formation, parties that are formed not based on sect, but are, that are based on shared uh, agendas that have to do with reform. That this is a long road for Lebanon, but I think that's perhaps the way to go. Thank you, Mona. Let's go to Paul and then, and then David. Paul? Yeah, I mean, let me start with the Turkey question. I would, I would say that, I mean, particularly looking at the, the recent elections, it turns out that Turkey, for whatever reason, does not have uh, much current influence in Lebanon, is not investing in any big way, and hasn't really made any big gains. Uh, maybe it's investing elsewhere, but uh, it's not a major factor in Lebanese uh, politics. It has it uh, chosen to be. I still look at uh, Turkey when I think about Lebanon more in longer term. Uh, you know, what are the future of relations in the Eastern Med going to be? What are the trade routes? What are the gas routes? Turkey is a very important player, but I see no short-term uh, interest or role that Turkey really has, has made. In Lebanon, I think the relations, particularly of the Sunni community, remain, uh, you know, joined at the hips, you know, to the Gulf countries for many economic and historical reasons. The Gulf continues to sort of stay on the sidelines, although there's a bit more interest than before, and we'll see how that goes. Lebanon, Iraq, uh, Sarahang, it's such a fascinating, uh, both extremely complex. Uh, on the one side, I, I, I sort of say, well, after 5,000 years of top-down rule, from Hammurabi to, to Saddam, it, it will take a while for, for self-government uh, to take root. It will take a while uh, to figure out how uh, politics in a multi-ethnic and multi-sectarian or multi-communal country like Iraq uh, can find some balance. Uh, that alongside high levels of corruption, a lot of militias. Uh, so, uh, you know, when you look at the, uh, you know, the glass half full, of course it's never going to be easy. Uh, there are a lot of parallels between what's happening in Lebanon and Iraq, maybe we'll try to learn here and there from each other about what might work, what, what might not work. One striking difference is communal, is that uh, in Iraq, uh, the, I mean, to put it bluntly, the Shiite community, the Shiite community in Lebanon has been almost completely taken over by Iraq, uh, hook, line, and sinker to a large degree. I will note that in the last elections, there is a growing uh, opposition movement in uh, the traditional Shiite areas, uh, and it was manifested in the loss of, of several uh, non-Shiite candidates on Hezbollah's list, which previously it used to automatically be able to get elected. And so there is change afoot. It remains very much a minority thing. I don't know if it'll be a game changer anytime soon. But in Iraq, you have a very solid uh, what do you want to call it, Arab, Iraq, an Arabist kind of Shiism, uh, which which much more effectively is trying here and there to, to resist, you know, Iranification. And, and that's a very big, a big difference, at least at the uh, communal level. But both have very challenging politics ahead. I won't add anything more about uh, the reformist candidates. We've talked about them, other than to say, and I'm in touch with, you know, many of the groups in Lebanon. For us and the groups in Lebanon, the priority is unify, unify, unify. Uh, and that's, that continues to be the, the, the need. doesn't mean unify absolutely everybody, but there needs to be one solid opposition reform bloc that can become sort of the national brand, can become the solidarity of Lebanon, can become, you know, the ANC of, of Lebanon. And that hasn't happened yet. But the success in Parliament uh, shows that there is an appetite there and there's enough uh, political know-how uh, to leverage, but we need to make more progress inside the country and in the fight. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you, Paul. David? Hi. Um, yeah, thank you. I think uh, I don't have a whole lot to add to what's been said. I think. Uh, the question about uh, the parallels between Iraq and, and Lebanon is, um, I think, uh, salient. The Mohassasa, the Taifia, um, uh, there are a lot of parallels. Um, uh, parallels in dysfunction um, as well. 
um, the inability to uh, coalesce around issues. You know, you had the same protest movements, uh, anti-corruption in Lebanon, in um, in Iraq, violently, uh, especially violently uh, repressed in, in Iraq, um, but still struggling with the same um, fundamental issues here. Uh, not only sectarianism, but the the notion of um, whether you can actually, in any of these countries, actually have a majoritarian government. Um, that um, is not tyranny of majority, but that actually pursues a, a positive uh, agenda and is not held uh, hostage to the consensus um, or the tilt or whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, Turkey, I'm, I'm, I'm with uh, where, where Paul is. I don't see any uh, particularly uh, profound um, impact of, of Turkey during the, the last elections. Um, as for the Saudi role, um, once again, a little bit more diplomatically involved than they were. Um, I, I always used to joke that uh, the, the Saudis' favorite Sunni in uh, in Lebanon was Samir Jaja. Um, <laughs> so I don't think they're necessarily, um, you know, the funding Sunni community. Uh, they're looking past the, the people that they share common objectives with. Um, uh, and yeah, I think um, I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. As we come to very close to our end of the, our event, uh, there is a, a small question that came through uh, uh, those who are participating virtually, and it's probably addressed uh, to Mona, since she was the one who mentioned a technocratic government. And the question is from LT asking, how can a technocratic government be formed given the, the presence of Hezbollah? So, I, you know, I want to, I'll give the floor to Mona and also to see if she has any final reflections for one minute. So one minute each, if you have any final reflections, and then, and then we will end our, our session. So, so, Mona. so my, my push for a technocratic government really stems from the fact that, again, Lebanon doesn't have the time to lose on the typical um, shenanigans. And um, I think a combination of external pressure and, frankly, internal pushing on this uh, from various reform elements. And frankly, um, the extent to which one sees more uh, unrest, social unrest, which is there uh, at a low level, those are all factors that I would say, uh, and, and others may disagree, I don't, I don't think it is in Hezbollah's interest to have Lebanon uh, fall into a complete social implosion. I don't think that, they, that that plays to their advantage necessarily. And so to my mind, it's not a foregone conclusion that Hezbollah would uh, obstruct the formation of a technocratic government with the sole mandate of uh, uh, implementing the IMF-demanded reforms so that the country can avail itself of much-needed uh, financial resources and begin to put itself on a path toward reform. The only other thing I'll say in closing is I think this is an incredible moment in Lebanon's history. It is a moment that is um, fraught with all kinds of challenges, uh, the likes of which in some ways we haven't seen. But I also think it's a moment of hope. And I think um, the extent to which, um, first and foremost, the Lebanese themselves take matters into their hands as they have and demonstrated a desire for change. And then the extent to which the international community, to include the United States, reflects back that desire and responds in kind in ways that help forward that agenda is all to the good. Yes, time is of the essence, but I time doubt. Time is of the essence. But though. I doubt that Hezbollah would agree to a technical government. Well, we'll we see. Don't know. You know. Uh, David, and then the final, final word goes to Paul. David. Uh, thanks. Yeah, I, I am. I am skeptical about uh, uh, technocratic government. Uh, it may be a great idea, um, and what what's best for Lebanon. But whether the the powers that be, um, who are still uh, incredibly corrupt, self serving, um, and have um, interests narrowly defined that uh, do not uh, include among them um, the uh, the well being of the people of Lebanon. Um, these are these are the same. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a little concerned that we're, we'll, we we would be able to move ahead with that, and of course with the with the presidency out there, this is going to to complicate things greatly. Um, any kind of government in Lebanon. Um, 
but I, I would say the one thing that uh, is unusual, uh, but that is a positive, is that there appears to be, at least uh, among the sort of, uh, whether you want to call it the Lebanon support group, I think everybody, excluding Iran, um, agrees that um, there should be no bailout, that the Lebanese people have to take responsibility, that there has to be reform. Um, and then there will be a huge amount of help for Lebanon. Um, but this is uh, you know, a unique opportunity, not only because the Lebanese people spoke to a certain extent in the, in the elections, but because you have this sort of broader consensus among the countries the, uh, abroad that are actually interested in, in what happens in Lebanon, um, with the notable exception, of course, of, of Iran. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you. Uh, Paul? Yeah, I would say for, you know, for inside the country, I mean, the priorities to me are social solidarity and helping those who are desperately in need that the Lebanese work together, uh, uh, you know, on the social side. And, uh, and secondly, politically, as I said, build on the limited success uh, that the 2019 revolution brought, success but limited. Uh, build on that a wider national movement that's more unified, uh, focus on the next elections in the uh, local and you know, municipalities, support the 13 that are in parliament so that their experience is one of success. For the international community for the next six months, I would reiterate an intensive diplomatic effort uh, led by the U.S. and other like-minded countries, and maybe would need a back channel to Iran to make sure that Lebanon elects a, a, a new president, an effective president, not a client president, uh, and that it also selects an effective prime minister and forms an effective government. Uh, that is, un, you know, that is, that is critical for Lebanon to be able to move forward. And I fear that left to themselves, the Lebanese political dynamics will not produce that. And the region and the world should, you know, cannot afford another completely failed state on the Eastern Mediterranean. So there's an interest in putting some effort in that. And thank you for USIP for hosting this. Uh, thank you, Ambassador. Thank you yeah, very thank much. You. Thank you very much. I think uh, this was a very rich discussion, and we will continue to follow the situation in Lebanon, both internally to see the formation of the government, the election of the president, and the performance of parliament, and then also at the regional level, what will happen with issues pertaining to the maritime negotiations, uh, the impact of the nuclear file on, on the situation in Lebanon, the situation in Syria, and internationally how developments in Ukraine will affect uh, the situation in regarding food security in Lebanon. All what remains for me is to thank you all, the three speakers, uh, Mona Yaqobian, uh, Paul Salem, and uh, David Schenker. It was a pleasure to have you all, and perhaps we will continue to follow this issue. Maybe we'll have another discussion by the end of the year or so. Let me also ask those who would be in the Washington area to visit our USIP website and perhaps buy some uh, free tickets to come to visit the, visit the Imagine exhibit. And thank you very much and hope to see you soon in other events by USIP. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.